crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome to Watch Jerusalem. I'm Chris Eames and I'll be your host for today's program, stepping in for your regular host, Brent Nagtigale, who's away up north on a trip in Israel uh, this time around. So I'm bringing you the program today from where I'm based here in Edstone, England. Well, this has been my first time in a while guest hosting the podcast, so you'll have to forgive me if I'm a little bit rusty, but let's get right into it. Now, if you've been following our channel, or really biblical archaeology in general, uh, you'll know that the, the great Jerusalem archaeologist, Dr. Elat Mazar, sadly died about a month ago. Uh, she was a dear friend to me, and I've had the privilege of working with her on several excavations, working with her, working for her, and uh, serving as her office assistant for a while. She was uh, a woman uh, most known for her archaeological work in Jerusalem, uh, but she also did archaeological work further afield, uh, particularly in Achziv. Uh, but, but Jerusalem is what she's most famous for, specifically relating to the city of David, the Ophel, and the Temple Mount excavations and especially for her use of the Bible in her research, consulting the Bible as a historical source, uh, something that really set her apart from many of her scholarly peers, who, uh, who more often than not have uh, a rather negative view of the scriptures. But as she described herself, she would work, quote, the Bible in one hand and the tools of excavation in the other. And this was something that she learned from her grandfather, Another of the most famous archaeologists, well-respected, well-loved archaeologists in Israeli history, and that is Professor Benjamin Mazar. Uh, he was a man sometimes called the Dean of Biblical Archaeology. Elat wrote about him uh, in, in one of her articles. She wrote that one of the many things I learned from my grandfather was how to relate to the biblical text, pour over it again and again, for it contains within it descriptions of genuine historical reality. Pour over it again and again, he told her, for it contains within it descriptions of genuine historical reality. And uh, in, in that same article, Dr. Uh, Elat Mazar re relates some of the opposition that she faced, much of it relating to the subject of the historicity of the Bible. Uh, and indeed, even in the world of biblical archaeology, biblical archaeologists, the Bible has a rather poor favorability rating. Unlike with Dr. Mazar, many an archaeologist's career or a general Bible scholar's career is built around showing how the Bible is a flawed or ahistorical work. And it used to be in, in the realm of biblical archaeology, Israeli archaeology, that this was more of a Tel Aviv University versus Hebrew University of Jerusalem type of thing. Tel Aviv, of course, seen as the more liberal anti-Bible school, and Jerusalem seen as the more conservative pro-Bible school. But even, uh, even there, there's been an unfortunate change. 
Uh, and as we mentioned, I think on a program a couple of years ago, there was a case of an American archaeologist, uh, uh, the uh, a regular director of the Tel Shiloh excavations, um, Dr. Scott Stripling, who's uh, who, who gave an interview a couple of years ago commenting on his lecture that he gave at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, a guest lecture that he gave uh, discussing the Bible and archaeology. And he was speaking to PhD students. All of them, quote, loved what I was talking about, absolutely loved it. Um, and that they told him he was, quote, the first lecturer all year to use the Bible. First lecturer all year to use the Bible. And this in this uh, what was regarded as more of a conservative school for archaeology, biblical archaeology. Now, Dr. Stripling did have a lot of praise for the work being done at Hebrew University, but, but he said it was sad and, and really tragic to see that the Bible was not being consulted or featured in its archaeological program. And you would think that would be the case uh, in Israel, of all countries, and especially in Jerusalem. Uh, he, he commented that it is tragic to have that level of anti-biblical bias. Uh, and he, he continued to comment that much of Israeli archaeology has become totally secular. And so this year then, uh, biblical archaeology has uh, really come at, uh, at a bit of a loss with, what's, with the death of Dr. Elot Mazar, but also with the death of the late great Herschel Shanks at the start of the year. Um, this was, of course, the founder and editor of the widely read magazine, Biblical Archaeology Review. It was a famous magazine for making Bible archaeology readily accessible to the general public. Uh, a public, by the way, that has a huge appetite for this kind of information. And we'll get into that a little bit more toward the end of this program. People love hearing about, reading about, uh, discoveries of tangible evidence of the stories that they've grown up with, grown up reading, that they've held dear, that really Western civilization is built upon. It's built upon this, uh, the Bible, Bible foundation in many respects. Uh, and this, despite trends in higher education and, and that academic bias against the Bible. And it's this bias that I want to delve into a little bit for this program, specifically a bias of assumed Bible error that the Bible is fiction, kind of a general uh, view of the Bible as fiction, that it must be wrong, that this or that couldn't have happened, that if evidence of this or that hasn't been discovered yet, it must be wrong. Uh, it's a bias that can be found in higher education, uh, especially over the past several decades, but, but also as a result, it does filter into the general public and elements of the general public. And since I'm living in the UK and bringing to you this broadcast from here, I thought I'd give you an example here out of England. Um, now, as a side point, I've, I've, I've wanted for a little while to do a little street polling here myself to ask people uh, a series of questions. Firstly, if they believe that Muhammad really existed. Secondly, if they believe Jesus existed. Thirdly, if they believe Moses existed. And finally, if they believe Adam existed. Now, I'd wager that, that the majority would say, the majority or, or maybe even 100% would say that Muhammad existed. I would say fewer would say Jesus existed. 
Very few indeed would say Moses existed and virtually none would say that Adam existed. Uh, and this, of course, despite the fact that Moses wrote of Adam's existence, that Jesus preached about the existence of both Adam and Moses. And the Quran, of course, teaches about the existence of all three. But a somewhat related poll has already been done in this country. Now, England, of course, is a majority Christian country, although those numbers are fast going down. Um, but, but, but it is still a majority, slight majority Christian country. Uh, not quite like America, America much more so, but it is still a majority country. And a few years ago, the Church of England did a poll which revealed that nearly a quarter of all British adults believe that Jesus never existed. A quarter of British adults believe that Jesus never existed. Now, this is interesting because in the scholarly, scientific, academic world, the consensus is that the man Jesus did exist. And you don't have to be Christian to believe that. You don't have to take the New Testament as doctrine to believe that. Uh, that's up to you. But that a person called Jesus was on the scene 2,000 years ago. And that can be easily determined based on the textual evidence and how it emerged. Uh, not only is there the explosion of Christianity and Christian texts from the very same first century, uh, he is also mentioned by non-affiliated pagan Roman sources from that same century. And he's also described in first century Jewish rabbinic writings. And all of this stemming from at most just a few decades after the events at hand, after the events described in the New Testament. And really, as an aside, there's, there's arguably more textual evidence for the existence of Jesus than there is for the existence of Muhammad. Uh, but nev nevertheless, again, nearly a quarter of the public here simply assume Jesus to be simple fable, that, that, the, that the man Jesus never existed in any form. And then you take that and you extrapolate it back further. Much fewer would say, I'm sure, that someone like King David existed, or especially Moses, or Abraham, or Adam. And I would say in Israel, the percentages would be a lot more favorable. But again, given the, uh, given the increasing secularization, the numbers there are surely on the wane as well. And so this is the theme that I want to get to on today's program, the often fraught assumption of fable. Yes, in the public, but particularly in academia for this program, and especially in the world of biblical archaeology. And as we get into the second part of this program, we'll look at what biblical archaeology was intended to be at its foundation and core. And this is interesting, for example, when it comes to King David. David is the most mentioned individual in the Hebrew Bible, arguably the most famous king in world history. But up until just a few decades ago, a significant scholarly opinion was that he was just a myth. Again, that he, was, that, that he was complete fable, just a myth. Well, it's in the Bible, and the Bible is wrong, right? And there are all of these fantastical things that happened during his reign. Israel was surely never a strong power, like the Bible describes. And so it's, it, it must be fiction. But, but with King David, uh, the, this view, or the significant scholarly view of him as a fictional ruler, this was... Um, 
this was the case right up until 1993, really. 1993, a, a ninth century BCE inscription was unearthed that changed everything, the Teldan Stela. And it mentioned David on it. And not only that, but in the context of a royal Judite line of David, a house of David, a kingdom of David. Now, this artifact was scrutinized like you wouldn't believe it. The, uh, the, the critics weren't about to let this one get through easily before it was finally accepted as an authentic piece referencing King David. And in the years since, two other David inscriptions have surfaced. You can read more about those on our website. We've got an article entitled The Three David Inscriptions there. So now that he had been proven as an individual, the narrative had to change. Well, David did exist, but the rest of it is false. He wasn't really a great king. Uh, Professor Israel Finkelstein, uh, he submitted that the evidence suggests, quote, David and Solomon were, in political terms, little more than hill country chieftains whose administrative reach remained on a fairly local level restricted to the hill country. A lot of, uh, a lot of soft language there uh, to, to, to describe just, just a s- kind of small group, a tribal group couched in the mountains of, uh, of, of Judah uh, in the hill country. Uh, that's all that they were. And further on, he writes that, quote, we still have no hard archaeological evidence, despite the unparalleled uh, biblical description of its grandeur, that Jerusalem was anything more than a modest highland village in the time of David, Solomon and Rehoboam. Well, that is false. Uh, That in the time since that was written, I think it was 2002, uh, the Bible unearthed, I believe, was the title of that book. Uh, that, That has been proven false. And we won't go into it, but you can read more about that on our website. In particular, Brent's article, Did David and Solomon Really Exist? He's also had a recent article go up about the Solomonic Tower, that if it was excavated, this tower from the 10th century BC, we know where it is, uh, we, we, we know the, the dating of it, uh, but it still remains buried under a busy road, and we can only, uh, we can only determine the, the very edges of it. But if it was excavated, this would be the largest uh, largest structure in all Israel from the biblical period, from the, from the period of the Hebrew Bible, and again, uh, belonging to Solomon's reign. So I think that's pretty strong evidence there just from that one item. Uh, I forget the title of his article. Uh, it's a recent article about Solomon's tower, uh, but you can go ahead and read that. Uh, but that's pretty pretty uh, convincing uh, discoveries there and, and uh, a pretty convincing thing that, that shows that Solomon's Jerusalem was far more than a modest highland village, to quote Israel Finkelstein. And of course, it was really that narrative that Dr. Mazar was taking on with her work, especially as it relates to the discovery of King David's palace in Jerusalem. And then again, regarding that discovery, there's been a lot of claims and misrepresentations out there about that discovery and by people completely disassociated with the site, like Professor Finkelstein as well. But our team was there with her, assisting Dr. Mazar in excavating the site, seeing it, studying it with her up close and personal, and you can read our full article on the subject on our website. And that one is entitled, Is It Really King David's Palace? 
And then there's, uh, so putting aside that the, the existence of David himself, the man, and then David's kingdom, David and Solomon's 10th century kingdom and the size of that, then there's the attacks on the Bible's characterization of David, uh, David the man. And this is what the author Joel Baden wrote, quote, the, the biblical narrative may be considered the ancient equivalent of political spin. It is a retelling, even a reinterpretation of events, the goal of which is to absolve David of any potential guilt and to show him in a positive light. End of quote. Really? If you know anything about the biblical account of David, you know that that's wrong. Does, does the Bible just make out David to be the most angelic creature? Actually, he's perhaps, uh, what, what this author is doing is perhaps unwittingly revealing one of the great proofs about the historical reliability of the biblical account, as opposed to those many other ancient accounts out there. This is something that the, sets the Bible apart from other clearly biased works across the ancient world, and this is that the Bible records all of it, warts and all. David's sins in the Bible are described in full detail, like, like few other people on this earth in history, surely terrible deeds and actions that led to the deaths of tens of thousands of his own countrymen and just an awful family situation, the, the kind of polygamy that was going on there, the, uh, the leading to eventually rape and incest in the family, terrible situation. And of course, the Bible describes David's repentance uh, in, in all of that as well. But it really is to quote the author again, does the Bible just try to show David in a positive light? Uh, is it just political spin, just a retelling or a reinterpretation? Uh, just, uh, just, just trying to show David as the, the most angelic being? Of course not. You know that that isn't the case. Uh, and you compare that to, to the other ancient works out there, clearly biased works of, of other kings throughout the Middle East, Kings that would traditionally claim predecessors' deeds for themselves, claiming defeats as victories. The, the, the type of regular thing that would go on, uh, uh, defacing monuments, scrubbing out records of rulers that they disliked. The Bible is really set apart from this. Uh, the Bible record is really set apart from it. And that's, that's one of the big proofs of the, the historicity of the Bible, is that it admits and, and tells the, the faults, uh, the, the negatives, as well as the positives. But King David is one thing. Uh, it's a pretty huge thing, a, a huge one, a big topic for debate. But you name your subject, and there'll be something out there dismissing it. What about Samson and his foxes? How's that for a spin to a different subject? Samson and his foxes. This probably isn't one that comes immediately to mind, but, but this is what the 18th century French scholar, famous Bible critic, Voltaire wrote. Uh, he wrote the following, quote, I beg of you to tell me by what dexterity Samson took 300 foxes and tying them together, tail by tail, put a firebrand in the midst between the two tails to set on fire the corn of the Philistines. The fox is only an inhabitant of woody countries. There were no forests in this canton, and it appears rather difficult to catch 
300 live foxes and tie them one to each other by the tails. End of quote. Now, of course, this is referring to the account in Judges 15. Uh, and the primary impossibility of the account being the fact that foxes are solitary animals. And thus, finding 300 of them is rather outlandish. But Voltaire makes the classic critic's mistake. Rushing to judgment based on hasty assumption, again, rather than careful research. The Hebrew word doesn't actually refer to foxes at all. It refers to jackals. And jackals do congregate in large groups, which would have made it easier for Samson to catch the number that he did. Although, of course, it would, it would still have been quite the feat. But then the Bible talks about uh, this being the case as well, that, that Samson had, uh, had help from God with his strength, with, with the, the feats that he was able to accomplish. Uh, but, but jackals were unknown to Europe, and so the word was translated as fox. And then, of course, not to mention the presumption of Voltaire that there were no forests in that region. Ancient Israel was a lot more verdant and uh, forested thousands of years ago. So while trying to humiliate the Bible account, Voltaire really, if anything, ends up humiliating himself. And herein lies a big problem and a warning for those who are so quick to rubbish the biblical account. Be careful. Because it does tend to come back to bite, and it can make you look more like a fool. Uh, but, but it seems those that are dismissive of the biblical account seem to lack some of that care. And there are any number of examples out there. There's a more recent example from last year, a professor of biblical archaeology and religion, who last year posted a guest article on the left-wing news website Haaretz, that was really taking aim at biblical literalists. His article was entitled, Did God Destroy the Walls of Jericho? A Brief History of Bible Literalism. So this professor of religion, of all people, really condemned in this article those who believe in the Bible literally. He writes that, quote, It seems no proof of the inaccuracy of the biblical narrative will dismay the faithful. I'll read that again. It seems no proof of the inaccuracy of the biblical narrative will dismay the faithful. Those poor, faithful people that just don't get it. And, uh, and here's one of the proof, proofs, so-called, that he provides of that inaccuracy of the Bible. Quote, In the 1950s, the ruins of Jericho were re-excavated by the British archaeologist Dame Kathleen Kenyon. She discovered that the walls that, and he lists a few uh, archaeologists that excavated them, that these walls excavated had been destroyed about 1,000 years before the postulated time of Joshua. So you've got this excavation going on in the 1950s of Jericho. Uh, Kathleen Kenyon comes along, picks up the, the mantle from where other archaeologists have left, up, have left off, and she determines that, okay, the, this destruction uh, dates to 1,000 years before the time that the Bible says Joshua existed. So, Bible, wrong. So, is, is this the case, though? Is this really the case? That these walls were destroyed 1,000 years before Joshua? If you do even the most peripheral research, you know that that's extraordinarily wrong. Uh, really, it looks like he's a bit trigger-happy with the zeros on uh, for this article, because the collapsed walls of Jericho 
excavated by Kenyon, are dated by her to about 100 years before the biblical chronology of Joshua. Actually, more like 150 years. 100 to 150 years before. That's miles away from 1,000 years. 1,000 years is just outright false. And and even then, uh, that dating that Kenyon gave, sure, it was before Joshua's time period, only 100 to 150 years before the biblical chronology of Joshua. Uh, but even then, with that pottery dating that she gave, when you consider that in the realm of 3,500 years of history, in a limited excavation using 1950s techniques and a dating based primarily on what was not found, 100 to 150 years is basically nothing. It's basically the same thing. And further, archaeological evidence since presented points to a more accurate date of the Jericho destruction layer too. Can you guess? Surprise, surprise. The biblical chronology of Joshua at the end of the 15th century BCE. And you can read more about that in uh, our Watch Jerusalem article on Jericho. Uh, I believe it's called Uncovering the Bible's Buried Cities, Jericho. Uh, But never mind that, according to this esteemed academic, what did he say? Quote, It seems no proof of the inaccuracy of the biblical narrative will dismay the faithful. End of quote. But it seems they really need to redefine their definition of proof. And you've got all manner of other examples. I I recall there was another article that around that same time last year on King Manasseh and what what the archaeology says about King Manasseh. And this this archaeology writer, he he was comparing what the what the discoveries on the ground say versus what the Bible says about Manasseh. And, and he was painting the picture that the Bible says this diametrically opposite, uh, gives this di- diametrically opposite view of King Manasseh, who, by the way, has been proven in archaeology. His name has been proven as a king of Judah. But, what, but, but the writer in this article says that the Bible only describes King Manasseh in one chapter of the Bible, and he proceeds to talk about how the archaeology remains are a worlds apart from the biblical characterization of Manasseh. But but again, that's that's simply not true. The Bible actually has two chapters describing Manasseh, and that second chapter that evidently the writer forgot about, that describes to a T the the archaeological discoveries that were related in that very article. So the Bible does talk about what was discovered on the ground, and I remember at the time uh, pointing that out in a, in a brief comment on the end of the article. Uh, but but did the did the author go back and change the article? No, uh, it was simply a case of of deleting my comment. Um, so so you can see the way that that goes. Uh, really, kind of deceptive. Really, uh, the 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 spin that is is it the Bible putting the spin? Uh, out there? No, more often than not, it's these biblical archaeologists that are putting spin on the archaeology to make it seem like it's contradicting uh, the Bible when in actual fact it aligns precisely. Now, so often you'll hear that refrain about how the science of archaeology is just sticking with the evidence on the ground. Evidence, evidence, evidence. 
That's all that this is about. This is just about the evidence. And that's, of course, necessary to be objective, objectively looking at evidence. This is something that Dr. Mazar says uh, when she gets heckled about the biases of her donors. Uh, people come up to her and say, well, well, this is biased or, or th this donor is biased. And so that's going to ruin the, the excavation or that donor. Are, are you concerned about this or that bias? But uh, when you... Her, she has the, the perfect response to that, which is the ground will reveal what the ground will reveal. Let the stones speak. Uh, I can't change what the, what the ground is going to reveal. The ground doesn't care who's donating to this excavation. The ground will reveal what the ground will reveal. But, but for individuals such as we've been mentioning, is it really just about the evidence? Is it really just about the evidence? Let me give you another example. Of course, the general academic theory is that the kingdom of Israel was comparatively weak compared to the other nations around it, other nations and kingdoms throughout the Middle East. Weak militarily, diplomatically, certainly it couldn't have been of any real influence. Well, the Kirk monolith was an artifact discovered in the late 19th century uh, I think about 150 years ago, and it's a tall Assyrian inscription talking about the king of Assyria fighting a Levantine alliance. The, the inscription mentions King Ahab of Israel, who was a part of that Levantine alliance. It mentions King Ahab sending 10,000 soldiers and 2,000 chariots to the battle. Now, if you know anything about the about ancient chariot warfare, you know that that's a huge force of chariots. I guess you can kind of think of them as the ancient tanks. Uh, 2,000 chariots to this battle. And as this inscription shows, uh, it's, it's a third more chariots than the amount that the kingdom of Syria, the strong kingdom of Syria, sent to the battle. Uh, so, so what is the reaction? Was it that, okay, here's some extra biblical evidence now, evidence from the ground that, that the kingdom of Israel really must have been a powerful ancient force to be reckoned with? Was that the reaction? I think you can probably guess what the reaction has been. Wrong again. Uh, but Because a significant view of this artifact is that it must have been scribal error. Can you believe it? A scribe must have accidentally put the wrong number in there. So no, Israel wasn't a powerful kingdom. Now, this kind of reasoning would almost be humorous if it wasn't uh, so tragic. And we've got a full article about this as well on our website explaining all of this. It's entitled, Did King Ahab Really Have 2,000 Chariots? And it shows that these numbers really do fit, not only with the biblical account, but other archaeological discoveries as well. So this isn't just about evidence. It's about personal theories. It's about putting personal theories, in, in many cases, personal anti-Bible biases over and above evidence. And it makes you wonder, what problem do people have with the Bible? Do you, do you really see this kind of uh, assault on the Quran? Do you see it on the... Uh, the, the Hindu works, uh, any other works like this? What kind of attacks are there out there like there are on the Bible? What's, the, what's, what's with this attack on the Bible? This isn't just about evidence. It's about personal theories over and above 
the evidence. And we have to hold this kind of misrepresentation to account. We have to show the public that, no, this isn't the case. This is what the Bible says. That is what the Bible says. This is what the archaeology says. And that's part of what we're doing here at Watch Jerusalem. All right, we'll take a short break there, but stay with us because when we get back, we'll, we'll get into what biblical archaeology was really intended to be from its foundation. Stay with us. This is Watch Jerusalem, where history and prophecy come alive. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. For the podcast today, we've been talking about some of the inherent dangers of assuming the Bible to be fable, to be simply a work of fiction and a real uh, anti-Bible bias in not only higher education, but also in the very world of biblical archaeology. And so continuing on with the subject, but if if you look at it, having a favorable view of the Bible isn't just about religious bias, though. After all, this was the book that shaped Western civilization and and our freedoms and liberties culminating in for for Britain, the Magna Carta, for America, the Constitution. And again, going back to the biblical archaeologist, Dr. Elot Mazar, uh, arguably the greatest biblical archaeologist out there. She wasn't religious herself, but she saw the Bible as a valuable historical tool. Now, for archaeologists and historians trying to understand Greece's past, it's helpful to have a good knowledge of the writings of, of Herodotus, of Homer, uh, I'm sure for, for Egypt, Manetho, or, or other Egyptian writers. And for Israel, surprise, surprise, it's the Bible. You don't have to believe it. That's up to you. But the fact is that it is there. And to cast it aside would be like, uh, I think I've heard an archaeologist say this before, might have been Dr. Dr. Mazar, It'd be like cutting your arm off, throwing away a weapon, throwing away a tool. Why would you not use that tool? Why would you not use it to help? And uh, so a lot of this discourse is negative. And that's really an unfortunate premise, a premise of negativity toward the Bible in modern biblical archaeology, in a lot of religious studies at universities. And our founder, the late philanthropist and educator Herbert W. Armstrong, He always hammered home that a flawed premise, a flawed foundation, really condemns a structure. And it's in all parts of life. It's in in religion, it's in politics, government, it's in our day-to-day lives. The success of something really comes down to the foundation, to the premise, and a premise of negativity. Negativity toward the Bible, assumption of error, really isn't a good premise to work with. And as we're going to get into here, we'll, we'll have a little look at the premise of biblical archaeology, at uh, the foundation of the biblical archaeology movement. You know, there's a great rule upheld most notably in America, or at least it used to be, and that's the presumption of innocence. That you are innocent until proven guilty, not guilty until proven innocent. 
And it's up to the prosecution to prove beyond reasonable doubt that the defense is guilty. That's where it starts from. And the same logic can be applied to using the Bible in archaeology, not working from an assumption of error or jumping to conclusions. Especially uh, what often happens, jumping to conclusions based on a lack of evidence. You have to have the evidence to draw a conclusion. And of course, any anyone can make up their own mind about what they believe to be truth or error. Uh, but how about starting from a premise of, hey, perhaps there's something of real value here. As Professor Benjamin Mazar said again, to quote him, talking about the Bible, quote, pour over it again and again, for it contains within it descriptions of genuine historical reality. That's what he told his granddaughter, Dr. Elot Mazar. Now, the late Herschel Shanks, who, as we've mentioned uh, at the top of this program, also died earlier this year, he had the following to say about Dr. Mazar. This was written in somewhat of a tribute article to her, supporter, supportive article of her several years ago. He wrote, quote, No one would question her professional competence as an archaeologist. Her chief sin, however, is that she is interested in what, the, what archaeology can tell us about the Bible. This was her chief sin. But, but what exactly is wrong with that? What archaeology can tell us about the Bible? And that's an important viewpoint, and that's a foundational viewpoint for the existence of biblical archaeology, as we'll get into. She is interested in what archaeology can tell us about the Bible. So again, this year with the death of Dr. Elat Mazar and of Herschel Shanks, the world of biblical archaeology really has taken a hit. But it is still alive, though, and there's a real sense that, uh, out there of, especially among Dr. Mazar's assistants, uh, fellow archaeologists and, and acquaintances, a real sense of needing to continue in the unique path that she forged. And, it, and that's what we at Watch Jerusalem seek to do and to support those who do so. And we seek to keep you up to date with all the rele relevant discoveries in Israel, in the Middle East, and even abroad in how they relate to the Bible. And in many cases, where there, where there is a biblical connection to this discovery, uh, but the, the connection isn't made by the researchers themselves, we point that out to you. We point out that connection, those connections. So do subscribe to our email list. If you haven't already, subscribe to our free magazine. Why not? It's absolutely free, bi-monthly, uh, beautiful quality magazine. I think it's 32 pages long. Uh, a digest of biblically related news as well as biblically related archaeology. And check out some of our website, website articles themselves online, watchjerusalem.co.il. I did a quick search, and it looks like we've already got some 400-plus archaeology history articles up on the website just over the past few years. So if you're wondering about this or that subject, just type it into the search bar, and we may have written something already on the subject. So we're working to keep biblical archaeology alive because there certainly is a hungry audience for it. And that gets to the premise of why biblical archaeology, why biblical archaeology exists in relation to that audience. And again, to quote from Herschel Shanks about what he wrote regarding Dr. Mazar, that, that her chief sin being that she is interested in what archaeology can tell us about the Bible. Is that really a sin, though? for biblical archaeology? 
Note the founding of biblical archaeology. The, the following statement that was made by William Thompson in 1865. This was at the launch of the Palestine Exploration Fund uh, here in Britain. The Palestine Exploration Fund, really the big start to biblical archaeology and the biblical archaeology movement. Uh, and uh, this is what he said at their first meeting, quote, our object is strictly an inductive inquiry. We are not to be a religious society. We are not about to launch controversy. We are about to apply the rules of science, which are so well understood by us and our branches, to an investigation into the facts concerning the Holy Land. No country should be of so much interest to us as that in which the documents of our faith were written, and the momentous events they describe enacted. At the same time, no country more urgently requires illustration. Even to a casual traveler in the Holy Land, the Bible becomes, in its form, and therefore to some extent in its substance, a new book. Much would be gained by bringing to light the remains of so many races and generations which must lie concealed under the accumulation of rubbish and ruins on which those villages stand. End of quote. See, the 19th century British public, and the Western world in general at the time, held dear the history and the teachings of the scriptures. Yet they were, of course, thousands of years and thousands of kilometers removed from the places and events described in the Bible. And as such, scientific excavations were now to be carried out in order to see just what kind of historical corroboration and illustration could be found for the biblical stories. And you can read more about this foundation of biblical archaeology online, again, on our website, in our article entitled The Vital Importance of Biblical Archaeology. Now, thanks to the secularization, secularization of education, education and society, or no thanks really, uh, that, that public interest in the Western world has gone down some. But the amount of corroboration for the biblical account has only increased, and dramatically. There's conclusive, extra-biblical proof of now nearly 60 different individuals in the Hebrew Bible, dozens of biblical cities, uh, corroboration of the, the events that happened in them that, that the Bible describes, dozens of biblical nations, wars, corroboration of geopolitical events and realities, corroboration of everything from kingdoms and wider empires, right down to prices, names, and even sayings. Now, in the early 20th century, that Palestine Exploration Fund confronted and rectified an issue that had come up. It was an issue of in inwardly focused elitist scholarship that was forming. Uh, the organization in the early 1900s uh, was being criticized for becoming too dry and too academic. And th does that sound familiar today? The, the organization had gotten out of touch with the general public and had become rather arrogant, really, intellectually arrogant and self-serving. The charge was that, quote, however interesting the researchers of the society may be to geographers and anthropologists, the plain Bible student who is not concerned with abstract science derives little or no benefit from them, and they do not help him to an explanation of any difficulties that may meet him in his reading. 
And so the PEF, the Palestine Exploration Fund, worked to confront that, and, and they did change that. Uh, and if I can return to what uh, Herschel Shanks wrote about Dr. Mazar, uh, again, to quote from him, her chief sin, however, is that she is interested in what archaeology can tell us about the Bible. Really? that That's the essence of biblical archaeology. That was the foundation of biblical archaeology. And so in that, really, you have Dr. Elat Mazar with her life, with her life's work, really embodying the essence of biblical archaeology. To return again to that quote uh, from the early 1900s uh, about the PEF, the, uh, the plain Bible student who is not concerned with abstract science derives little or no benefit from them. And they do not help him to an explanation of any difficulties that may meet him in his reading. So Bible archaeology in its core, at its core, is a field of service. Service to the common man. Service to that so-called plain Bible student. That's who Dr. Mazar lived to serve throughout her life's work. And I can say absolutely that they loved her for it. She was... Such a loved woman uh, and highly respected woman among the general public. And there still is a significant thirst for this research, uh, not just in Israel, but all around the world, really. Nothing in the wor archaeological world seems to make headlines like a new Bible discovery, biblically related discovery. And sometimes I think it makes some people in other fields jealous, really. I think that's certainly the case with Dr. Mazar. Uh, and her finds, the kind of publicity that she would get, perhaps a little academic jealousy there. And then to this day, you have eager diggers and volunteers, plain Bible students volunteering for uh, excavations, who really care about what what they're doing and, and, and how the, the discoveries relate to uh, what they believe, uh, the, the kind of teachings that they hold dear scriptures that they they grow up with stories in the bible and if you're if you're in israel you might notice that some of these volunteers wear uh certain t-shirts with a with a bible verse printed on them it's really a beautiful verse and we'll conclude with that verse on today's show it's taken from psalm 102 uh for watch jerusalem we use the jps version so that's verses 14 to 15 for those who use say the king james version that's verses 13 to 14 so the verse itself is the the last of the two but i'll read the one before it to give some context so from the jps version psalm 102 verses 14 to 15 quote you will arise and have compassion upon zion for it is time to be gracious unto her, for the appointed time is come. Uh, and I'll just interject here. This, this scripture in general is talking about the end time. It's talking about the, the time just before the coming of the Messiah, or just at the coming of the Messiah. And we read here, note verse 15, quote, For your servants take pleasure in her stones and love her dust. For your servants take pleasure in those stones of Jerusalem in those stones of the Holy Land and love her dust. Well, that'll conclude today's program. If you'd like to send feedback, you can do so to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il. We thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time.